My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury. This week on the show, I am joined by Penelope Spheris, director of the pioneering music documentary trilogy, The Decline of Western Civilization. The first one, of course, documenting the early LA punk scene. The second, the rise of hair metal. And the under-recognized third film, uh, which focuses on crust punk, as well as so many big movies of the 80s and 90s. Movies like The Beverly Hillbillies, Little Rascals, Suburbia, and one of my all-time favorites, Wayne's World. Spheris' latest project is narrating Peter and the Acid King, a true crime podcast set in the Los Angeles punk scene of the early 80s. It concerns the unsolved murder of Peter Ivers, host of New Wave Theater. Over the last few years, I have been hugely inspired by his work. He was an unlikely pop culture figure who was uh, many things at once, an all-star harmonica player who played alongside Little Walter, uh, a guy who wrote music for Eraserhead uh, with David Lynch, as well as artists like Diana Ross and the Pointer Sisters. He was friends with Van Dyke Parks, and uh, ultimately he found notoriety as host of New Wave Theater, which showcased bands like Bad Religion, 45 Grave, The Circle Jerks, Angry Samoans, and so many more. Ivers' work was featured as part of Night Flight, which was a pioneering music and pop culture institution that I have interacted a bunch with in my work with Wastoids, a podcast and video network based out here, whose programming can be found on the current incarnation of Night Flight Plus, a streaming service update on the original concept. Peter and the Acid King explores that epochal cultural era Working with investigator and co-creator Alan Sachs, who was a friend of Peter's, Spheris narrates this 10-part series, which is just about to finish its run. Uh, She brings a world-weary charm and her sly understatement and signature attitude to the role, and we are so pleased to share this chat with her, which is a touch shorter than your typical Transmissions episode, but nonetheless packed with insight. We've only got a few more episodes this season, just one more after this, in fact, and we hope that you have enjoyed the season so far uh, and that you dig the archives, which are full of past episodes with people like Michael Rother, Bill Frizzell, Jim Jarmusch, Mac DeMarco, members of Sonic Youth, Yola Tango, and so many more. If you dig Transmissions and Aquarium Drunkard in general and you want to support the work that we do, there's an easy way to do that. Just head over to our Patreon page, pledge your support over there, and help us keep the servers humming. Okay, here's our penultimate transmission of the season with Penelope Spheris on her work with Peter and the Acid King and much, much more. We hope that you enjoy this one. I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side.
Penelope, we actually spoke a few years back um, when Shout Factory released the uh, the Decline trilogy, and uh, uh-huh. we spoke we spoke for Flood Magazine, and I've uh, I've wanted to talk with you uh, uh, again ever since. So I'm, I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Now I understand why your name is so familiar. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter and the Acid King has been such an incredible thing to listen to. Uh, in the very first episode, though, you talk about how it you weren't immediately sold on the idea of doing a podcast about Peter Ivers and, and his death. What, what was some of your hesitancy about that? Yeah, um, not immediately sold is a major understatement. I was sure I wasn't going to do it. Uh, And my hesitancy came from the fact that um, I always had such a terrible, uh, I don't get scared easy, but a fear of the person that a lot of us believed killed Peter. And Mm -hmm. Uh, randomly, I, I ran into an old friend, Alan Sachs, in uh, the CVS parking lot in Studio City. And he uh, asked me if I would do a... First, he asked if I would just do an interview with him. And I said, not if so-and-so is still alive. And he said, he's not. He passed away. And I said, okay, I'll I'll do it. And then, you know, two years passed and... I get a call from Bob Emmer at Shout Factory, who released the Decline DVDs, as you know. Uh, and um, he said, oh, we'd really love to have you be the host on this show. And I said, I'm not a narrator. I'm not a host. You know, I make other movies. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he talked me into it, basically. <laughs> what were the elements that drew you into this story? What, what, what made it possible for you to be talked into doing it, given your... Uh, given your- desire first off like you said some a sense of fear um but then also this is a very delicate story right i feel like peter's art and his life is is so fascinating and he did so much incredible stuff but um but there's an element of this story that is of course very tragic and uh and that unsolved element makes it feel especially tragic you know what i mean so was there any part of you that was just worried that the story was going to be told in a sort of sloppy or or or, or you know uh anything like that were, were you well, nervous I was about more that worried, i was more worried that it was going to be told in a really morbid graphic way and i even put in my contract that i would not talk about i would not talk about those kind of subjects and i would not read you know description uh, of about that sort of graphic way he, you know, to just, I didn't want to describe the way he was murdered. And uh, because I feel like there's so much violence in the world now that if we as entertainment producers keep making more violence, that it's just adding to it. So I have this kind of deep down principle that I, I won't do any of that, but you know, what drew me in besides Alan Sachs and Bob Emmer was the fact that it was um, Imagine Entertainment, Ron Howard and Brian Grazier's company. And they're certainly just very prestigious and full of integrity, those guys are. And yeah. they run a really, really nice, um, sweet ship over there. Everybody is so pleasant. 
And uh, so that was one element that brought me into it. And the fact that I, they agreed to, that I wouldn't be talking about the violence. Um, yeah. But also they, they kind of sold me on the punk rock thing because, you know, it happened just kind of at the end of the original punk rock, punk rock glory days. And, um, you know, that I, I like to talk about. So there were those elements that drew me into it as well. Yeah. I, I'm glad that you made that point about the sort of graphic quality of, of things and, and, and of, of, uh, I think true crime is not my favorite genre. You know what me I mean? Either. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's and it's not that um David Lynch is somebody who comes up in the Peter Iver story, obviously, due to their collaboration. And I think about David Lynch films and they can be incredibly violent, you know, and sometimes even grotesquely so. Right. But, but that doesn't that doesn't bother me, you know, and I like horror movies or yada yada, whatever. But True crime has this, so often, it has this unfortunate quality of sort of losing the nuance and sensationalizing these tragic things, you know? And you have to always remember that there are real people at the heart of this. Exactly. The fact that, yeah. 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 And I think that this show has done an incredible job, um, in part due to your insistence, I'm sure, uh, not not focusing on the the lurid element. And well, I guess there are some lurid elements obviously. We're talking about an art rock uh story where there's plenty of drugs and plenty of, you know, sex and all of the things that you might say is lurid. But I don't feel like the show has in any way um been disrespectful to the story. And I I imagine a lot of that comes from from part of Alan's Alan's work and Alan's insistence. Had you ever heard rumors, you know, hey Alan's cuz he's been he worked on interviewing people for a really long time right like yeah well, i mean uh, years really he was very thorough about the people he you know he reached out to and then the the um interviews themselves were very very much in depth i mean he truly wanted to see if he could get the case reopened and find out any missing information that might help the police find out who did it. And I think his inspiration for that was the fact that Peter was a very, very close friend of his, and he sort of just wanted to give him some due justice, you know? And yeah. that's actually another reason why I did the show was because Peter was a good friend of mine as well, and I did it just to preserve his memory and let people know what an amazing person he was. Yeah. Yeah. How about the actual um mechanics of of podcasting? Did you did you enjoy the narrating and and getting into that side of things, sitting down with the script and sitting in front of the microphone? I mean, I'm sure you've done commentaries and things like that, but had you ever really thought about f forays into voice work the way you are with this show? No, it was, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> wait a minute, I got to adjust my hat here because, you know, I'm always behind the camera. Even when I, I do my documentaries, like the Decline series or Sold Ourselves for Rock and Roll, these various films I've done, uh, music films, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm off camera. I never am on camera and I don't want to be on camera. Um, but with the, with the podcast, 
you know, my voice is there. Uh, I was fascinated by the way it all came together. Um, they they hired some excellent writers. And when they said they were going to hire writers, I'm like, what do you need writers for? You've already got like, you know, 10,000 hours of interviews that Alan Sachs did. So yeah, what do you need to write, you know? But now that they have um, Amber Von Chesson and uh, Caitlin Fontana uh, involved, these people know how to write these shows and tell a good story, you know? And yeah. I totally get why they wanted to hire writers, you know? Uh, and they really strung it together kind of magically, I think. Um, and as far as your question goes, uh, I, uh, you know, I was uncomfortable really in the beginning. And uh, then I, I kind of embraced being a, a host, uh, a narrator. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't usually read um, those comments that people make about my movie, you know, just the comments on the internet, you know, but I ran across, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, I guess, but I think it's funny. <laughs> I ran across one a guy that said, um, I don't like her voice. She sounds like a drunk old lady. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm not really that young anymore, but I can guarantee you, <laughs> asshole, that I'm not drunk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the way your voice sounds, and I love the character that you bring to the show, I, including what I have to imagine are just sort of your own little asides and interjections that aren't necessarily in the script, you know what I mean? I feel like there are moments where... Where you're uh, you're off the cuff a little bit. Yeah, you you can spot those. Uh, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, the writers, you know, they weren't born yet when uh, that punk rock time was going on, so they were not there firsthand, and they don't know a lot of the slang and sort of references that we used back then. And whenever I can. Um, inform them about those uh, references then you know they're really uh good about taking my suggestions i think they must have taken a hundred of them and and turned down two you know so yeah that's great yeah they they've been really cool about that but yeah i try to give it a little personality that way you know so I yeah I would I, avoid I I think you're right like it's it's best not to read the comments God knows I do but it is better not to um you talk yeah, I told that. I told Nathan <laughs> excuse me but I told Nathan Clokey the uh, main producer on the show he awesome dude I've never I've never liked a producer in my life I think oh no one other one uh, Jason the Johnson Champ but but um, Jason Clokey. I is really, really awesome. And uh, <laughs> I told him about that comment. And he goes, ah, they're a bunch of chicken shits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. He's right. He's right. And so that's whenever I think about it, you know, I go, oh, he's just a chicken shit. So I can ignore him, you know? <laughs> yeah. You talked about how part of what drew you into this story was what it said about the punk scene. And one of my favorite things or one of the things that I find most interesting and fascinating about Peter Ivers is, and, you know, I, I kind of came, 
I started listening to, you know, punk music or whatever in the late 90s. So I have my own perspective on it or whatever. But I definitely remember at that time this sort of sense, this sort of post-Kurt Cobain sense that it was like there was the hippies and there were the punks and there was no, like, crossover, you know? But, of course, that's kind of goofy because historically there's so much crossover. The counterculture... Uh, you know, proto-punk, many of the proto-punks would have been classified as hippies, and many of the punks had hippie vibes, even, you know. Peter Ivers sort of equals to me this insane cross-section of the counterculture in general, right? Because you've got this guy who is hanging out with Van Dyke Parks and is a har- harmonica master, and he's making these... The, you guys t- tell the story of... Was it... He opened for... Um, Fleetwood. Fleetwood Mac. Imagining Peter Ivers opening for Fleetwood Mac was a lot of fun. Um, but, <laughs> no, he bombed. <laughs> I, um, he, I can imagine their crew, their audience, not knowing what to make of him. But that speaks a little bit to what I'm, what I'm talking about. So Peter is not himself a punk, right? But he's Correct. able to recognize in the punk scene some seed of the counterculture that he's been a part of for most of his life is that how you would is that how you would put it does that sound about right to you yeah it sounds right but also um it it goes the other way as well meaning it was mutual for uh, all the punks that met peter that i knew um even though he wasn't the real deal punk you know he didn't come from the same place we come from uh you know he was a harvard graduate had a nice upbringing and uh, didn't come from, you know, a lot, a lot of punks come from getting shit beat out of them at their home. Yeah. That's why they leave. You know, Peter was not like that. He, he was different, but, but the punks liked him because he was unique and, and, and uh, there was nobody like him. And, and the other thing about him was that he had this amazing charisma like if you went into a club or a party, you would see all these people with Peter in the middle and, and they're all drawn to him. And that was a really special thing. Everybody wanted to meet Peter Ivers and he wasn't even like well-known at that time, you know, he right. just had this weird energy about him that drew people in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what New Wave Theater, obviously New Wave Theater was for a lot of people because it was aired nationwide and because you could see it through Night Flight. Um, It was a lot of people's introduction to punk, right? So I feel like, you know, if you're from some kind of podunk town in middle America and you don't necessarily know what's going on there, to see a show like that, it must have been mind-blowing and it kind of grows out of this era of public access television that has obviously been very influential to your work um wayne's world is i mean easily one of my favorite films i I have to be pretty frank there it's in the top five it's one of my number it's probably my number one comfort film anytime i'm bummed (laughs) out I put on Wayne's World. (laughs) Yeah, you just made my day. But um, (laughs) but the whole the whole thing is like 
there's a scrappy quality to new wave theater um, that Peter has a part of, and and it's reflected in that sort of DIY, low budget but low access to an audience moment that that public access fostered. I just would love to hear your thoughts on you know what what public access represented and 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 what kind of things people might have stumbled on in the middle of the night you know what i mean mm-hmm. on some strange some strange channel and really not had the context to know even what they were experienced i'm just curious what that was like as a viewer well i'll i'll tell you this that most of us in the original punk scene um when new wave theater was born um it was uh, kind of a joke uh Mm. And it was as if uh, Peter and David Jove, the producer, writer, uh, creator, were were trying to out-weird the punks, you know? It's like, okay, <laughs> punk rock is pretty freaky, but look how freaky we can be, you know? And it, it, it kind of smacked of... Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It just it put a bad taste in people's mouth. But then again, that was the only place where a punk band could be seen on television at the time. So bands, even though they didn't like the show, uh, and they admit they don't, they would go on just to have some national exposure uh, to the podunk towns uh, you referred to. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it did have... um, some you know a positive effect in that it it did help spread the visibility of of the major music shift that was going on here uh in la and uh you know it served a wonderful purpose but it had this feeling of uh calamity and um on purpose chaos you know sure but not chaos like a mosh pit where you know you could get an elbow and lose a tooth but more more like psychological chaos you know and i think that was because of the creator uh david jove he was uh, out there man well you talk about his interest in the occult and alistair crowley specifically and his wild history and multiple identities and all of these different things. So it's clear that there was a darkness and a sort of menace to him. His occult leaning, certainly it's easy to see why those inspire some fear, but I also get the sense that it really influenced the creative work like you're talking about. And I don't know if it makes me a total nutcase, Penelope, but I actually love the sort of beat poetry, half-sensical monologues that jove would write for peter to deliver um they're kind of my favorite part of the show i don't know like i said that might make me suspect in some way but um (laughs) but do you know what i mean like Uh, well i i think you're just a little more open-minded than me jason and you know punks back in the day they had their rules you know what i mean it's like uh 
you know, Jove and, and New Wave were setting out to break the rules and make their new rules and make their own new image and, and personality, you know. And it was really objectionable to most of the people that I knew, even Tequila Mockenberg, who mm-hmm. is one of the original famous punks, she she would um she would put them down left and right. But the fact is she also you know, help the bands get on the show. And so, uh, you know, it was, I love you. I hate you kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think they had some good dope. So, um, you know, <laughs> tequila would always smoke another one if she needed to, you know, um, it wasn't legal back in those days. That's for sure. But yeah, David Jove always had the best dope around, you know, when I say dope, I'm talking about all uh, illegal intoxicants. <laughs> Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Chronologically, the first story that most people hear about him is the Rolling Stones drug bust, which is covered in the show. But it seemed like whether or not he was carrying a briefcase around all the time, he did always have access to to drugs. And 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 that was he was able to use that as a way to draw in these creative types around him to oh yeah kind of build this thing that he was that he was i mean everybody from you know Alan to to Peter to so many others right kind of drawn into his orbit and both intrigued and maybe skeeved out by him but intrigue intrigue and, and skeeviness often kind of go side by side especially in like the entertainment world, right? Well, yeah, I mean, if you know drug addicts very well or even drug users very well, they'll do anything to get what kind of high they want, you know? And you can't stop them. And, you know, yeah, everybody thought David Jove was kind of crazy and scary. And my opinion, looking back, could have been schizophrenic. Okay, Um, but uh, I don't think he was ever diagnosed or anything. Um, You like a lot of schizophrenics. He had his smart side. You know, he he was also very bright. Um, He's got a daughter and I don't want to make her feel bad, you know, uh, by by saying anything disparaging against her father. Um, But he was a, a real unusual character and the fact that he could open that briefcase and offer you, you know, two, two and alls and, 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 and quaaludes and Coke and, 
uh, heroin, pot, whatever you wanted, he had it, you know, and uh, he was a snake oil man, you know. Yeah, yeah. I want to shift our focus a little back to to Peter and get a sense. You you talked about his incredible charisma. Um, what was he like to to be around, and what what do you, what sense do you have? of what it was that he had going on that sort of drew people to him who, and, and wanted to sort of be in his orbit, similar to Jove, but a lighter version. Well, I that's think. the thing. No, I mean, Jove had this negativity about him, whereas Peter, that's why they were the odd couple, you know? Peter had this amazing light um, positivity about him. And, you know, I think it has something to do with physics in a way, but positive attracts positive, you know, and they, people would just be attracted to him because he was never negative. He was never bitchy or on a downer or gripey or anything like that. He was always up, no matter what happened, he was always up and, and fun to be around. And I think that's really what what drew people to him and plus he just kind of reeked of creativity you know and talent and uh, we all just knew that he was going to be extremely famous one day we just all knew that about peter ivers yeah it that that's that's fascinating i mean and then just realizing his past like all the different people that he had intersected with, right? From Doug Kenny to John Belushi. Like the fact that he was he was in that milieu, like it, it's like you said, it was it's almost certain that he would have just eventually crossed into a place where more and more people knew him. I mean, before he passed away, he had written s- songs for the Pointer Sisters, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Diana Ross. Diana and Ross. Ha- yeah. Yeah. So he's like he's he's starting to score even like his his compositions are getting picked up by by mm-hmm. folks which which makes like his passing that much sadder because it did seem like his trajectory was moving up but to your point about his creativity i mean it's just wild right his his records sound unlike anybody else's he seemingly could kind of like he could act he could produce he could write you know he sort of had like all this stuff going on so it really is um, his record, Terminal Love. I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure you guys will get into this as the show concludes. But Terminal Love has like kind of built a strange cult following, right? Like yeah. people are starting to like people are kind of kind of into that one. And and a few years back, the label RVNG released a great <laughs> retrospective of Peter Ivor. So I feel like more and more people are starting to get turned on to his creative side and his musical side. Um, but your show helps to illuminate so much more about him, which I have to imagine. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's an incredible thing to to do for somebody who. Yeah. It's kind about. of gratifying to, uh, you know, it's 40 years later here. Um, but it's kind of gratifying to help other people acknowledge him. Um, I mean, it's so sad when such a talent is taken away at such an early age, you know. Um, but uh, I can't. I mean, I can't even imagine what his family went through at the time. Uh, 
Oh God. But, um, you know, all of us who knew him were just, just knocked out by how he left us. And, also um, kind of made uh, made us afraid because they couldn't figure out who did it back then. And then it was like, oh, well, maybe that person is still here and maybe one of us is going to go, you know? And it kind of put a real damper on the whole party scene uh, that we were all in back then, you know? Yeah, because if you don't know who did it... <laughs> You know, chances it are it's it, and yeah. and chance, but chances are it's somebody who's in the circle, right? You know, to well, that's some degree, what you would yeah. Think, you know, yeah. but there, but then again, the irony is, but why pick the most sweet, vulnerable, kind, darling person? Why pick that person? You know, it it just, uh, you know, life is not fair. What can I say? No. Uh, Absolutely. Well, Penelope, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So before we before we kind of wrap up, I wanted to touch on, you know, the Decline series is such a, it's such a huge, it sets such a huge high watermark in the sort of rock documentary world. And I think when people try to make movies about music, often they're aspiring to that level of quality. I'm curious if having done this project the idea of you know podcast documentaries are at all interesting to you is that something that following this you you could find yourself maybe imagining creating documentaries in a more audio form or do you feel like visual is the way to go for you still well i've um you know when i <laughs> uh, thank you for asking that but in the um Right around the turn of the century, I had the displeasure of working with the Weinsteins on a movie called Senseless with Marlon Wayans and David Spade. And it was right around that time that I thought, I don't really want to make movies anymore. And I did a couple more after that, uh, scripted films. And then I did, you know, with Sharon and Ozzy, I did We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll. I went on the OzFest tour. But, you know, the fact of the matter is um, I really like building houses and I'm really good at it. And, and, and that's where your focus is. My focus is now on building houses. I am, I am in love with it. I've got seven so far. And um, I love doing the podcast as sort of, a little other kind of creative outlet, you know? Yeah. Um, it's not my major source of income by any means, as I'm sure you know. Uh, <laughs> but, sure. you know, it's <laughs> like, at least you reach a lot of people. And at least when I have my two cents, I can throw in, like, please don't make violent movies. Please don't mo make uh, movies of, uh, you know, fast and furious street racing. Please don't put... Uh, billboards up on uh, Sunset Boulevard with everybody with a gun across their chest. I mean, please stop doing that. It's stupid. It makes me so mad. This is my big gripe, you know, is um, people still making violent movies. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really like the industry anymore, the movie business. 
uh, and it doesn't like me. It doesn't like women, and it doesn't like older women. But you know what? I don't care. (laughs) Well, you managed to get some pretty great work into the into the zeitgeist and out there for folks i had already mentioned of course how much i love wayne's world but i would be remiss if i didn't note how much i also enjoy the movie dudes i think oh, thank you, you. <laughs> one first and foremost leaving uh seems so <laughs> imposing in life but then i feel like maybe it's one of your great skills as a filmmaker you, you make these kind of sweet bonehead guys, <laughs> you just make the audience identify with them so much and start rooting for them. And that movie and Wayne's World both have, you know, this sort of um, <laughs> just like I don't know, uh, just kind of yeah. That kind was of a, John a, John Cryer <laughs> and Dan Roebuck and Flea. Flea was in Dudes, you know. Flea is can that guy? He's he's every time he shows up in a movie, he's incredible at it. He's such yeah. a good. He's mind blowing, you know, from Back to the Future to, you know, uh-huh. and then at this point, getting into helping to produce his own stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's such a great film. And as a big fan of the desert and as a big fan of, of your work, that's, um, that was, that's a, that's a great one. And I think that with all of these different stories, you managed to bring a lot of humanity to, um, characters that maybe people, uh, think they understand from looking mm-hmm. at them, right? But but well, you reveal you reveal a lot more depth, and so I appreciate you doing that for the Peter Iver story, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to hang out and talk with me about it. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for talking about Peter, and God bless him. And also, I do appreciate that about dudes. Um, Bob Emmer at Shout Factory finally got that movie out on uh, on Blu-ray, so. And, stream, <laughs> and streaming, too. So, you know, people, uh, look, it takes a long time for me to be, for my films to be successful, except for Wayne's World. That was overnight, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But the other movies I've done and all the projects I work on, sometimes they take a long time. And I think they'll be around after I'm dead which, um, and so will the houses I'm building. (laughs) Thanks so much for spending time with us on Aquarium Drunker Transmissions. We know you have a lot of listening options out there on the World Wide Web, so we're honored that you'd carve out space for us. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his discography of gorgeous library music. You can find more of it by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. Art for this episode was created by Ian Everett. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday night. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, podcasts, and more. Next week on Transmissions, Matt Worth of RVNG joins us to discuss the music of Pauline Anna Strom. I hope you will join us. Until then, be well. This transmission is concluded.